And what I took from that is that it's not always about the business case. It's not always about the strength of your business case in the music industry anyway. A lot of the time it is about people's comfort zones. Mm. It's about the effort that people want to put in. It's about what is familiar and what is relatable and understandable. So by the time, you know, I've realized that me and the label have different visions, I have to make a decision. Am I going to continue pouring effort into explaining everything that I want to do from a social agenda, from a progressive standpoint, from a political standpoint, and then dealing with the fact that people will just say yeah to your face and then go off and do the opposite of what they said in the music industry? I'm thinking like, how many years do I really want to dedicate to trying to get this right? I went and listened to all of the podcasts back to back, back to back, back to back. Um, and it just started making me think again, like obviously I know parts of your story, but I wanted to know from your perspective mm -hmm. when you knew you was good at storytelling. Mm. I think by the time I was a rapper about 16 years old. Yeah. That's what set me apart from my peers. My peers were good at different stuff that I wasn't good at. Yeah. When it came to rapping, but everyone knew me for the stories. Everyone just knew you for the stories. Did you focus on a particular story from, from all the way back then? No, I told stories in different ways. Sometimes yeah. I'll be retelling a story that a wild story that my brethren told me. Mm. Um, and it's like an in joke. We're just joking with each other. Yeah. Or sometimes I'll be reflecting on my life. But now that I think of it, even a little earlier than that, when I was around 12, 13, I used to write wild stories, mm. just stories. And they'll kind of go viral in my year. Yeah. And um, yeah, I haven't thought about that in years, but that was probably an early sign as well. Yeah. Because um, you have a saying where it's like, telling your story is the secret to survival. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? I was listening to a um, Zimbabwean talker earlier today. His name's... Um, Joshua Maponga and um, he was explaining that without the study of yourself you will never really get to the core of what your life is here for and by st studying yourself that doesn't just mean looking only at the events and processes of your life but also taking into account your ancestors mm. their trajectory because you are the culmination of your ancestors. I got a poem called Mixed Messages. And the first line is, I am the living future of my ancestors. So um, you got to be very careful how you tell that story. On an individual level, it becomes important because you become aware that as the inheritor of everything your ancestors ever did, you are... Um, you continue their journey right so you might look at uh you know yemi might love drinking water but that might come from some long running theme throughout your bloodline about maybe you know your people's live next to the water and maybe another one was very innovative or had some kind of connection to water in a certain way and so there are long running reasons why we are who we are and we can't allow those reasons to be derailed or misconstrued by someone else's philosophy, someone else's science, someone else's analysis of the world. That's what I mean. Mm. Telling your story is the secret to survival. Once you're able to master your story, you're able to 
take agency over your um, direction. Mm. But that, I hear that and I agree with it, especially from the perspective of like, we are here because of all of the so many decisions that people have made beforehand. So that can also lead to you feeling quite trapped in a sense that because I, because of these decisions that have been made before me and have left me to where I am today, it's not my choice. So people can feel that they're kind of restricted in terms of the choices that they made. And also they might feel a weight of responsibility mm-hmm. to make sure that they do good with whatever sacrifices their parents have made for them. So let's take the example of you again, yeah, mm-hmm. where your mum put so much time, resources into you, like went to one of the top schools, then you went to Cambridge. And then when you were like, actually, I don't want to go into a job. I want to focus on this artistry thing full time. Like, what was that conversation like? (laughs) Bearing in mind the sacrifices that your mum might have been through and everything like that. Like, how was that for you, would you say? So when I had that conversation with my mum, it was around the time when me and you last connected. Mm -hmm. These times, it's like early on in my uni journey. And I'm just clocking, like, I think I've got, an answer to what I'm going to do with my life. Mm. And I think this poetry is it. My mum wasn't ready at the time. She didn't understand what um, that looked like. I was telling her that, you know, people are booking me to come Birmingham. People are booking me to go all over the country. And what I'm doing, I can just sense. I'm just getting started. i got all of these ideas. It's going to take years to really unpack them. I'm trying to describe it to her, but she's never seen it before. Mm. And um, she's from a generation that, were led to believe in settling on a career, doing one thing for a long time, finding a reliable, stable employer with deep pockets, and they'll be your zaddy and they'll take care of you for life, pretty much. That was the that was the earlier model. Yeah. People really built lives and families and b- mortgages off the back of that model. No one in this room, I don't think, you know, is working with that model right now. Mm. I think we're we're on a different thing. So, but these things take a while to process. So my mom just she wasn't too thrilled when I first tried to explain it to her. Yeah. But to go to your other point about people feeling trapped, it's a very good point. And a lot of what I say is for the purpose of empowerment. It's 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 for the purpose of reminding you that it is not actually all on you. Like a lot of what is happening is in some senses beyond you and it's it's also about appreciating that and respecting that and taking um taking the opportunity to move forward as your blank slate mm-hmm. all right so the, all of those pages of the books were written before now it's a blank page for you so what are you what are you what, what are you <laughs> <laughs> i like that so then when you have that blank piece of paper it's like being able to define your own vision and so being able to have, I guess, being able to have a fluctuating vision or a vision that is different depending on what goal you want to try and solve. So your earlier vision was to become an MP, right? And, oh, that, well, maybe it's probably become prime minister, to be honest. I don't, or what would I your earlier vision I hadn't thought as far as prime minister, but I had thought as far as MP. Let's think about that seriously. Yeah. And so what were you doing to put, that into place versus when you decided to mm. change it and like how your vision mm. against I guess developed would you say I stayed in spaces that were related to civic engagement um, community organizing more so whether that was youth um, programs or um, sexual health awareness campaigns 
as a teenager, I gave a bit of my time to these things. And also I was trying to learn politics. That was That's probably the main thing I was doing to prepare. I, I studied politics at A-level and then and then at uni. And part of that was, was to be able to move in political spaces where um, I'd grown up seeing such a range of life. You know, I grew up in a black working class community. I go to school in a suburban community in the white outskirts of the city, but still predominantly Indian mm. and East Asian. So I'm getting such a mix um, and I want to be able to communicate everything that I've seen on a political level. And these are the things that I did to prepare for that. Yeah. What kind of things did you want to influence or change? I wanted to really intervene in the education of our young people. Mm. I think that's probably where it all started. I wanted to make the political case that um, our community needs to be able to self-determine on its own terms. I mean, that is... I just. It's like just repeating yourself. You got to be able to self-determine. Like, what are you trying to do? What are we trying to do? Um, how will our local government structures differ from, you know, the big government, like central government? What can we do to make sure that the challenges that we understand in our neighborhood can be dealt with effectively? But remember, I'm young. Mm. So when I think back on all of this at 32 years old, I'm like, oh, bless, man. <laughs> I really thought that um, at a governmental level, they just didn't understand. Yeah. And if we could just get a chance, we'll show them. And on the way here, I was thinking about how people still make that mistake politically. Mm. People still approach challenges of black communities, working class communities, post-colonial communities. People approach their challenges like we're the first generation to deal with these questions. But no, like more time... For decades, if not decades, centuries, people in our shoes, black people, working class people, have tried to change the course of their society. And they've often been slapped down for various reasons. Mm. But that's a, that's a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Because um, I've just started reading um, this book called How They Broke Britain. Yeah. Mm, James O'Brien, no, yeah. it's on my list. And you know when you know like the game's rigged, but then you're James O'Brien, by the way, big up, he's amazing. But like when you read that book, you just see how much the game is rigged and how everything in terms of power, influence, um, the structures that are there. At the end of the day, it's about people who know people and people who grew up with a certain group of people mm -hmm. and everyone's just serving their best interests, whether it's the media, whether it's the politicians, whether it's like large corporations and when you see it from that lens, you're like, rah, mm. to an extent, we're kind of helpless here. You so know? can I just add a little caveat? Of course. You said everyone's serving their best, their, their own interests, mm -hmm. yeah. And I think a big part of um, propaganda that is fed to us, ruling class propaganda that's fed to um, the working classes of the world, is that everyone's just out for themselves. Mm. But no, they are. You know, I was chatting to a sister yesterday who works in care, and she was telling me about all of the dangers she faces because of the kind of care that she has to do with people threatening violence, with people saying one thing to the courts and then saying another thing to their actual doctors. Mm -hmm. So they're not on the right medication or they are not medicated when they need to be, blah, blah, blah. blah. And I was thinking, right, like you really put yourself at risk to do that work. But she believes in the work. Yeah. All of the teachers that we know around the country 
who are overworked, who are over, who are laden with all sorts of problems that are not of their own doing, but they're still underpaid. We saw um, all of the strikes in the medical profession over the past couple of years, the train drivers, the, the workers, yeah. right? Like a lot of people are in sectors, have chosen to do with their lives things that are supposed to help, selfless things that they don't even get fully compensated for. Chatting to a close relative who works in probation mm. for the exact, um, who has the exact same challenge. I ask, I say to her, yo, like, how are we going to pivot? Like, what, what do you think you can do to um, not, not, not have as much emotional damage and mental strain from your work, but still deliver good work? And she's like, listen, man, I just want to be there for the offenders. And right now, there is no way of being an effective probationer and not being exposed to mental strain and emotional uh, damage and institutional dysfunction. The people I work for ain't even serious. Mm. So I don't subscribe. I'm not, I'm not implying you were saying this, but I just want to highlight a piece mm -hmm. of propaganda. I don't subscribe to the idea that everyone is working out of self-interest. I think it is the ruling classes who are e extremely selfish, selfish on a level that we can't relate to. Mm -hmm. And that their selfishness is fed back to us through media and through academia as human nature. Yeah. This is just how people are. Yeah. But not to derail no, no, your no, point, I, I agree how they you. broke Britain yeah. is astonishing. The corruption yeah. is astonishing. Yeah, because yeah, I, I agree with you because it's when you have politicians going to food banks and acting like that's the good thing for them to visit, when the fact that there's a food bank in the first place, it shouldn't be there. Are you not embarrassed? It's, honestly, 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 it's like relying on the goodwill of people to actually get things up. So we've gone from a society where the government is providing certain public goods to the community have to do it and people are already out of pocket. Crazy. It's mad. It's and you'll mad. come and show your face for a photo. Or yeah. Not just politicians, the royals did it as well. Mm. It's like, it's grotesque. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but again, these are the things that put me off the political pathway, mm -hmm. the, you know, mainstream politics. I didn't want to do that. So when you went into music, so doing the artistry full time, mm -hmm. did you have a plan in mind, whether it was for yourself or for giving back to the community? Yeah, vaguely. The, 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 the general idea was I'm going to go into the music industry and I'm going to be different. Again, I was operating under the assumption, my brother, that these guys have never imagined another way of doing it. Yeah. They've just never seen anyone like me before. And when I get in there, I'm going to be so real. I'm going to sell so much that I'm, I'm, I'm going to change the model, the business model. They're going to now value investing in communities. They're going to value progressive messaging in the music. They're going to value community engagement with every album rollout or every single rollout, they're going to value all of these. They're going to value the neighborhoods and the geographies that these artists come from. These are all the things that I wanted to prove through my time in the music industry. And uh, yeah, I, I learned similar lessons mm. there as what I learned in the political space. So can you tell me more about those lessons? Um, so I'll give you concrete in illustrations. My first, in fact, going back to before I got signed, mm. I was signed um, at a time where off the back of like the space you saw me in. So when we connected, we was in uni and I was like hot on the ACS circuit. Big up all the African Caribbean societies. I'll always pay homage to you lot because 
you were my first viral vector. You were the ones that I traveled through in the early stages of my career. It's how I even met Sully Briggs. Mm. Big up Sully. So um, I've been making my name um, on the ACS circuit. Then I transitioned to the road rap circuit. If you remember those times, the UK was going for a strong street rap moment. Big up UK Overstood, GRM, Spiff TV, all of that. Um, and uh, for various reasons, I connected. You know, obviously I'm from the same ilk in it. Like we all learned bars. I just did something different with the bars. Yeah. So um, I've connected with that circuit. My name is Buzzing in that. And then from there, the music industry's caught wind of me. Um, they come to me, Retri2's manager, Zion. He um, steps in and becomes my manager. And he gives me real support in stepping up my levels. So now we're doing shows. In my last year of uni, it was by far my most distracted year doing headline shows. My headline shows were not just me just, you know, like trying to show you tunes or poems. I did a show about Malcolm X. I made it clear like what I was interested in mm. and what I was here for early on. Industry comes, people are talking, they want to sign me. And again, I'm making it clear. I'm saying, yo, this is what we're trying to achieve. The right person makes the right pitch. I sign with Island Records. Um, we get into that. Uh, I already had a kind of idea of what I, how I wanted to start this off. I wanted to achieve a couple things. First, I want to prove that I'm an artist. I know you lot might know me as a poet, but I come from music. I've got ideas. I'm a music connoisseur. I know how to put together a body of work. That's what I did. I put together my first, it was supposed to be an album. It ended up being an EP, mm -hmm. The Chicken and the Egg. From The Chicken and the Egg, I've, I've fused R&B with spoken word in a way that I haven't heard done before. Very proud of that project. Big up all of the production team. Big up Knox Brown. Big up Flat 10. Big up um, Matty ben, Benbrook. That was all uh, well and good, but the, the label I was with weren't really understanding the vision at the time. We had some frustrations. Um, the, uh, the EP was forced, yeah, it was forced to be an EP as opposed to an album. See. But um, it was released. It had a, lackluster released in terms of marketing yet the rewards that it brought in were quite you know unexpected from their perspective mm. my perspective no i wasn't surprised anyone else that followed my work wouldn't have been surprised that we were nominated for a bet think of mobile mtv award bbc awards bare things started coming in and from there the music and the, my labels started patterning up like okay my man's got something but still i don't think they had really grasped the core of what I was doing. Mm. They were just like, oh, raw, like, so he knows music. All right, cool. I'm hearing he can make, uh, you know, more conventional songs. So let's do that. Because like, what did they want to push you as before then? Just exactly. Like, that's a great question. Yeah. It's a great question. Mm. And you won't get logical answers to this, but there are answers. So we'll come back to that question. Okay. okay. So they wanted to... Um, influenced me to go down the more conventional route of make songs you know like soften the message a little bit and I was I'm not an, I don't feel like I was unreasonable in that space I understand they call it business but we're going to talk about why it's not just as simple as business in a second I understand that any in a, in a partnership you got to meet people halfway yeah so I'm willing to make a couple of tunes some of you lot might remember my tunes from that from those times Cat D you know, Cathy's a perfect example of this. Like, I'm, tr I'm, 
open-minded like let's make a something that can be on the radio something that can be in the background when it's a vibe you know it doesn't have to be poetry no beat everyone's listening to the mm. words like i can also vibe um but long story short that's all they wanted you know they overplayed the extent to which they wanted the malcolm x version i see they really wanted pop music yeah and um that got old so we agreed to go our separate ways but with the chicken and the egg, um, I actually, there was a very interesting experiment for me because the theme of that, po- of that poetry collection basically is a problematic relationship becoming a problematic family. Mm-hmm. Because that was the subject matter, I wanted to pioneer this thing that I had in my head, community engagement with the album rollout. I wanted to, to launch this in um, mother and baby shelters across the country. And I wanted to do a tour of mother and baby shelters. And I still don't know why people don't do this stuff. I wanted to do a, a tour. Like in, when people release a book, they'll go and visit yeah. bookstores and do readings. I wanted to do that with this music that is R&B. It's, it's, it's got a certain groove to it. It's kind of for the ladies, but it's also talking about the reality of, you know, the structural support that's needed and whatever else is needed to change the cycle that a lot of us are caught up in. I presented this to the label and I kind of, I just got air, presented it to other people in my camp. No one was really willing to run with it. Everyone wanted to fall back on the old methods. So, but I would say that if they went with what I did, we would have a bigger market. Like Mm. you wouldn't have to explain what I'm doing from scratch because you'd be going direct to consumer. The people that this is most relevant to, a lot of them are housed in a geographic location. You can target those locations. You can cost the operation. You could just get it cracking. But people didn't want to do that. And what I took from that is that it's not always about the business case. It's not always about the strength of your business case in the music industry anyway. A lot of the time it is about people's comfort zones. It's about the effort that people want to put in. It's about um, what is familiar and what is relatable and understandable. So by the time, you know, I've realized that me and the label have different visions, I have to make a decision. Am I going to continue pouring effort into explaining everything that I want to do from a social agenda, from a progressive standpoint, from a political standpoint, and then dealing with the fact that people will just say yeah to your face and then go off and do the opposite of what they said in the music industry. I'm thinking like, how many years do I really want to dedicate to trying to get this right? Mm. Decided to cut my losses and um, respectfully, we went our separate ways. Yeah. It's a lot to unpack in what you just said there. Um, because especially it feels like they were dragging you along and you're getting a commercial success. But was there part of you thinking, let me stay, do the pop thing? So then I can kind of like tick the boxes and then go back. Did you ever, did that thought ever cross your mind? Yeah, it did. Yeah. It did. So when I left the label, I knew that I wanted to commit more my t- more of my time to community work. I wanted to be in schools and prisons more. But um, I also knew that I want to keep trying with this music thing. I want to see different ways of doing it. Mm. Um, and I did. I, I, I ran a few experiments, uh, Big Up Chase and Status, released a single with them. I released a few of my own independent work. I shot a music video in um, Uganda for my song, Wake Up. It was beautiful times and it was out of my own pocket. I even toured on my own. But um, now I realise it's a bit of an uphill struggle 
without um wanting without a label. Yeah. It's a little bit you gotta really wanna only do this and you gotta be prepared for it to not work for some years before it eventually works. Mm-hmm. And um I don't mind the slog. I don't mind going taking the stairs as Nipsey used to call it. Yeah. But uh I also felt that my intellectual development was being stunted by that cycle. Mm-hmm. I don't have time to think. I ain't got time to read, to reflect. This is why I wanted to go back to community work because you learn a lot dealing with people directly. Yeah. Um, so there was a bit of a slump in my intellectual growth is what I felt. Yeah. I stagnated. I became quite an unhappy person when I was in the music industry. I was neglecting my family, my relationships. So um, I realized that chasing a pop single, chasing pop success, keeps you on that hamster wheel. It keeps you chasing short-term success, which everyone is saying is behind the decline of hip-hop for the first time in 30 years. TikTok, shorter retention spans, Everyone's chasing hits. Digital assessments of what is good music based purely on empirical evidence. And it's right. like That's the kind of thing that will corrode the quality of your art. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be part of that. I now wanted to move to doing more detailed work. And I thought that was going to be TV. Mm. Well, TV? What is in like, I don't want to say pundit, but like a commentator. On commentator, side. man. Yeah. Do you know Russell Howard? Yeah. Yeah, I wanted a poetry version of a Russell Howard show. That was my concept that I was pitching to um, networks at the time. Yeah. And I had some success, like networks were interested. But then I learned that the politics of the TV space is very much like the music industry, where the ownership, it's like rude Mm. for you as the talent to suggest that you can also be a producer Mm. in your 20s. It's rude. It's like you get laughed out of the thing. Anyone professional, serious, with money that you work with is going to tell you, oh, no, you know, go slow. Which, there's there's merit in that. I've seen people make that work. Mm-hmm. But again, I've got to decide, what am I doing with my life? Am I, am I prepared to tie myself to that pathway? Just like with being an MP, just like with being a pop star. And I thought, no, I don't think that's the most effective use of my time. Ended up being a podcaster. <laughs> I mean, you're smashing it so far, so yeah, that's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that time, that when you made that decision to part ways from Island Records, like, did it feel like a weight lifted, especially considering how you were feeling, like, at that time? Because you said you weren't spending time with your family. You said you weren't yourself. So mm-hmm. did it feel like a weight lifted? It was a weight lifted, man. Did people understand? No, oh, no one understood. <laughs> no one understood. Still. Apart from my manager at the time, Big yeah. Up Chisara. Um, nah, no one really understood. Like people thought I was throwing away the best thing that that could have happened to me because mm. this is coming off the back of a summer where my face is kind of like. People tell me that it felt like my face was everywhere. Yeah. People were coming home from jail, being like, "Yo, who's George the poet?" Because I'm hearing fifteen, right? Twenty fifteen. Yeah. People are hearing me on the radio. People are seeing me on TV. People are, and um, I know the truth of it. I know that like. It, truthfully that's not what I asked for mm. I I just wanted to go visit my mother and baby shelters I was very serious about that like I'd grown up around a lot of single mums and um, angry children and I to be fair 
my political analysis of some of those dynamics wasn't where it is today. But my intentions were good and I don't think we could have done any harm with the with the model that I was suggesting. I think it would have only been good. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time I was a lot of single moms were hitting me up saying, yo, like, you know, there's a spirit something spiritual happens when I listen to the chicken and the egg. Mm. Thank you for making that. It'll be, you know, it's a shame that more people don't know about it. That's amazing feedback to get though. It, it shows you're doing the right thing. And that's all I work for. That feedback yeah. there is all I re that's the measure. People don't realise that when when people feel like that, the money will come. Yeah. You'll be able to organise your career when you've got people that believe and feel a spiritual connection to what you're doing. Mm. So then for you, and talking about connection, like how do you stay in tune with the things that you want, the things that you desire, the things that are in your vision? Like that period of when you terminated the deal with Island Records. So like, how were you going back inwards to do that reflection, would you say? One thing that's always done that for me is um, being in Uganda. My parents are from Uganda. Um, I didn't grow up there, but I try and keep the connection because I don't really want to fall out of sync with my ancestors. And um, when I'm there, I just get a level of clarity. I think part of it is the exposure to... Um, different struggles different struggles it puts into context your struggle another one is like just the kindness i think it's a kinder environment um so reflection is 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 a big one um sorry reflecting in uganda is a big one also uh prayer you know i i have a very intense um long-running conversation with God. I believe in God. First of all, if you don't believe in God, um, I would invite you to, um, I would invite you to, I would invite you to think about the thing that ties all of this together. You know, something holds this together. On the way here, I saw a dog. Some A man was walking his dog here. And the dog started growling and acting all aggressive, but I couldn't see anyone around them. So I was trying to figure out what the dog was getting so angry about. And on the other side of the road, there was a fox. So a domesticated dog, a fox in the wild. Yet they have an understanding between them. They got some long running politics between them that has nothing to do with me and you. Yet it's part of an ecosystem that has allowed the world to grow in the way that it has. So, so I see the world deeply connected and I see that I have a, role to play in that world and I don't want to um, fall out of sync with whatever that purpose is so prayer reflection trying to think where I fit what problems am I solving what problems am I contributing to what problems am I working through um, and that's that's genuinely that's generally what informs how I move forward mm, so you mentioned purpose right so I'm going to push you on that so how did you discover what your purpose is because you're so multi-talented that there are so many areas you can speak to through your work. And for example, you mentioned about community work, you mentioned about education, you mentioned about single mothers and their babies. Where would you say your purpose is? Mm. Um, right now, I would say that my purpose is education, mm -hmm. educating as many people I can as I can about the political context that we're operating in, 
it's very important because we all um, want greater control over our lives, self-determination. Mm-hmm. But uh, you won't be able to push for that without engaging with the political context. So remember I told you I was studying politics. I thought I was going to be an MP. And people always ask me, do you feel like your degree was worth it? And I say I do because I had the opportunity and I didn't get everything. I didn't get my politics from Cambridge. I just got the opportunity to think deeply about the function of society. That's what I need. I didn't need that in order for someone else to employ me. I didn't need that in order to have a title that includes that. If my title is poet, but in reality, I'm using my training in the social sciences to create poetry that educates people, then that's it. That's, that's what I studied for. That's what I worked for. In terms of homing in on my, po- in, on my purpose, I feel like diving into my talent and how far I can take it, that helps me triangulate what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm good at this thing. I love doing this thing. And I'm passionate about working on those problems. How can I combine all of that? Mm. And that's the purpose. I like it. It's like a combination of everything, like mm. that together. That's cool. So then for you, what does success look like? Um, there are things that we're able to do today that we wouldn't have been able to do 50 years ago. And these are the successes of people that fought It wasn't through the benevolence of people above us who just wanted a better life for our grandparents, grandchildren. That's not how it happened. People in our grandparents' generation said, I'm not having that. Mm. People in Nigeria said, I'm not having that. Ghana, I'm not having that. Zimbabwe, I'm not having that. South Africa, uh, Uganda. People stood up. Kenya. Kenyans died by the tens of thousands at the hands of the British in the name of, we're not having that. As Africans, we're not just going to accept anything. Mm. You feel me? So... The six, that's, the, that's the level of success that I am interested in. To what extent can we materially change the um, options for the, our children's children? You and I just became fathers. So our babies are fresh. But again, looking at my son this morning, I'm thinking this is the culmination of all that ancestry. All those people who lived and died, this is where, this is where we've got to. This is my father's son's son. So that, that alone makes me focus sharply, intensely. That makes me feel like, okay, there are things that I don't want him to uh, struggle with. Mm. You, know, there's, there's a, you know, there's a genocide going on in Palestine right now. Uh, and that, that's, many of us are re-engaging with the fact that that's been 75 years plus in the making. Yeah. Right? So you won't be able to understand any of this if you don't take into account the struggles of people that lived and died before us. So when I look at the future and what success looks like, I did a prison workshop this time last week, this time last week, and someone asked me, what's your end goal? And I told him, this isn't the kind of thing that has an end. (laughs) Yeah. You know, my goals don't involve end. They involve um, pushing for a greater proportion of society to understand what's going on mm-hmm. and to be able to use that understanding to affect the direction of their society. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing doesn't have an end. Yeah, it's like passing the baton on to the next person and yeah. inspiring the next generation, to be yeah. honest, to keep going. Facts. Yeah, because I do think politics is one of those things where 
nowadays it's become so polarizing mm. where no one wants to come and meet in the middle mm. and everyone is like not willing to listen and i think if you want to change you have to listen and you have yeah. to come to a compromise like you said partnership mm. it's not about us versus them it's like okay how can we come together mm. to solve what's in our own best interests mm-hmm. um and it's a long journey but i do hope that things will change i think we're at that cusp where things have to change eventually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do feel like there's a there's a there's something happening at this time. Yeah. Um, but on the point of like people meeting in the middle, I feel like there is a burden on us as the working class. Mm-hmm. And even if you're middle class, even if you're making like six figures, if you have to go to work, you're working class, isn't it? <laughs> um, so those of us who need to work, we are under attack. You know, the cost of living is skyrocketing. Yeah. But our wages are not skyrocketing. The, yeah. the value of the currency that we hold is not skyrocketing. Um, so as our buying power, our, our, our ability to survive economically is being pummeled, you've got these politicians and corporations and media organizations who control the narrative. Mm. You've got them able to say the violence in Ireland is because the Irish were not... Um, more right-wing about their immigration. Or you've got them able to say whatever they're saying about um, Israel's actions in Gaza. You know, like, we're, we're made to, to, to fight each other. Yeah. And um, the ultimate thing that we're all going through is increasing impoverishment and um, a lack of democratic outcomes. How many people have protested and made up noise in the past month that... Uh, the political class the political class ha- is made of government and opposition the opposition ain't even opposing the government right now mm. to where our voice is not democratically represented <sighs> i can't even remember the point i was making yeah. <laughs> no, it's all good it's all good yeah oh yeah, yeah. meeting in the middle yeah, yeah, yeah. there's an extra burden which is why it would be best if as early as possible our children mm. are exposed to media and conversations that enable them to find solidarity with each other instead of inheriting the same old beefs because someone will legitimately say, oh, you know, um, now there's too many immigrants. That's the real problem with this country. And if you don't really have the argument as to why too many immigrants is part of the same war on the working classes of the third world, the working classes of um, the Western world, it's part of the same war. Like, mm. we're, as, as the working classes, we're competing for resources. If you ain't really got the language to articulate that, then, yeah, it's, we're just going to be um, caught in the same racist conversations. Yeah. It's interesting because um, when I think about, like, fighting for change, I've tried to de- distill it into how it can be done. And I think there's the protesting way where you go outside, march for change, as it were. Then there's the fight for it where you literally will go out, riot, and do what you need to do. And then there's the playing the game, where you kind of say, yes, master, to work your way up to the top, and then you can influence things. But it might take a little bit longer. And so I wonder, well, I'll put the question to you. Do you see it in those kind of three buckets? And would you see one being more successful than the other? Outline the buckets for me again. So protesting, so like peaceful protest, as it were. Mm. Then you've got like angry protesting so like be rioting taking things like revolutionary basically Mm, mm. and the last one being like playing the game so going through the ranks and influencing chains as you want to possibly through money Mm. i identify with those boxes to an extent i would just suggest a different way of looking at it 
playing the game is put to us as get a job or like integrate into their system and then change it from within. Is that what you mean, playing a yes, game? Yes, yes, Right. Now, that's been the path that I've been on since uni. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can personally say that I don't think that that pathway, I think they're prepared for that. I don't think that pathway changes anything. Interesting. It's their game. Mm. So if you ain't changing the real game, then what are you doing? Mm. You're just acting like them with a different branding. I guess it's like influence, yeah? Because Mm. everything boils down to money, in my opinion. Mm. And like, if you can influence politicians or to do what you need for your community, then you'll you'll have some kind of impact. You need to have some you need to have something that they're beholding you need to have something on them essentially in their game in now, their game yeah what you said is key mm-hmm. if you can influence mm-hmm. them to do whatever for your community and like i said a lot of us come to the struggle not aware that for decades if not centuries people have tried this yeah and um you know my read of the struggle is that um Every, no one has been able to do that. Mm. No one black anyway. Well, that's the thing, right? Because um, I look at, say, India, for example, mm. and what they've, what people from their, heritage, from their diaspora has been able to achieve, whether it be in politics or business compared to yeah. people from like African communities. And I just wonder where the differences lie, like yeah. where it comes from. Because even after listening, like, after, after listening to um, your latest season of After Empire, mm. And you got the focus on how our African countries went through the independence and they were systematically torn down through outside interests to serve the West. And that's put us back like how many decades or centuries because of what's been happening. Mm -hmm. Like you look at Congo, for example, the resources are there and you compare it to say another Middle Eastern country who has resources of the past being oil yet they're still able to develop themselves in the right way. So I just wonder, what are we missing? Because even like India, for example, they've got resources, whether it be gold, um, diamonds, and so on and so forth. So it's like, what is the missing yeah. source? Well, I'm so glad I came to you, man. <laughs> this is, these are my favourite conversations, bro. Um, okay. There's a few things to unpack. Mm, where do we start, man? Where do we start? Let's start with India. Let's look mm. at the nature of India's success. So India is often put to us as, you know, the, basically the opposite of a lot of African countries. They've been able to do this and that. And Rishi Sunak's prime minister and what, what, what. I think even though there is a racial order to the world where Africa is supposed to be the workers of the world, they dig, they mine, they plant, they farm, give all the resources to everyone else to do clever stuff and hopefully with the little pennies that they get from digging, mining, planting and farming, they can buy some of the cool stuff that you guys make out there in the world. So that's Africa's role. Mm. And what that means isn't that no African will ever be able to not do that. You and I are not digging, mining, planting and farming. But the majorities, the working classes of the countries that we're from, you're from Niger. Yeah. Yeah. I watched a video the other day about the conditions that are 
woman in Lagos is living in. And it weren't great. Mm. Long story short. Now, we don't tend to hear from those people. Not just, like, if, if you ask most people about Nigeria, most people probably have media on their mind. Their favorite artists, their favorite shows. Um, you know, Nigeria is is um, famous. It's mainstream at this point. Yeah. Um, but it's not mainstream for what most of the people are going through. There's a Nigerian artist, Omale, who people don't know his story. Like, if you listen to a lot of his music, he's a superstar now and his music's beautiful. But there's a sadness that always runs through it that just made me curious. One day I just listened to one of his interviews. That boy, first of all, his father died when he was young. He was the man of the house, having to support his family, his siblings. And the way he, he and his friends used to do that, they used to steal oil from the wells. And he lost so many, so many of his friends in his teens and died doing that. Not shot in, not being gangsters. They died stealing oil out of the ground in Nigeria that they are entitled to, but that Shell probably has wrapped up and paid off the government to X, Y, Z. Anyway, that's the condition of the working classes of the world, of Barbados, of India. India has uh, an untold level of poverty in so many uh, concentrations of the population. Um, and India also has loads of people, second biggest population in the world. So by um, its logic, it's logical that they will be overrepresented in the diaspora community. Out of all of the diasporas in Britain alone, yeah, there's going to be a lot of Indians because in the world there's a lot of Indians. Now, what is the nature of their migration? This is what I mean about like study of self. People need a minute to be able to study our communities because I grew up also thinking, why are the Indians so much better off than we are? Like, Why are they so much more organized and disciplined? But it's like you get into these details of, the, of their immigration. Firstly, you realize that not all Indians are created the same, or, you know, sure. like are, are in the same situation. And secondly, many of them have privileges, which I also believe I have, privileges that stem from proximity to colonial power. Mm. Privileges from proximity, closeness to colonizers. I have this relative to many Ugandans because my grandfather worked his way up from poverty into like, the, the favor of the king and the king was a key collaborator of the British in my in that region of the world. I'm sorry. It's not it's not something I'm proud of. But yeah, by way, da, 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 you know, like the privileges get transmitted. That's deep sociology. We're not gonna get into it. <laughs> but there's that. Now when you look at Rishi Sunak, when you look look at Suella Braverman, Pri Patel, these are all people of that ilk, people who whose histories are tied in with colonial privilege. And um, you, can, you can see it in their politics. You can see why they um, identify as, like, you know, Rich, Rish, Rishi, Rishi Sunak mm -hmm. is one of the richest, if not the richest people in parliament. Yeah. Right. Well, that's his clan now. More than he's Indian, he's rich. Do you understand? Mm. That's who makes it. That's, uh, that the, this is the power community of the world. 
Now, being rich, being a rich brown person, you will integrate into a community of rich people. And guess what? The majority of that community is not not brown. Mm. That's not that's not the only observation to make about the function of power, but it is an observation. I think this about Jay-Z all the time. Jay-Z has been the main proponent, the main mouthpiece for this seat at the table rhetoric in our generation. Been very influential in getting a lot of us to believe that when we get an opportunity and we're in the room and that's when society gets better. But uh, you need to go check the state of Marcy Projects. Mm. You know, you need to go check the state of Brooklyn. You need to uh, track gentrification in Brooklyn. You need to track um, incarceration rates in Brooklyn to reach your own conclusion as to whether Jay-Z's seat at the table means anything to the community that he's from, right? Jay-Z is now from a different community. He's from the community of rich. He's, he's got a different bloodline. His bloodline is now rich. And, you know... I, I put that on him because of his politics or lack thereof. Yeah. I'm not saying that everyone who gets money is automatically, but what tends to happen is that the pursuit of wealth, firstly, playing the game, and then the preservation of wealth, maintaining the game, maintaining your position, that stops people from identifying with the working masses of the world, from Ireland to uh, uh, India to Uganda to wherever, the working people of the world do not uh, benefit from people not changing the nature of the game, the fundamental nature of the game. You started off by saying you need money. And yeah, in this world, with this game, you do need money. Mm. But this game is not a naturally occurring game. This game is human made. And there are different ways that the resources of the world could be organized. I believe that we are propagandized into thinking that the way it is, is the only way it could be. You're going to have some bosses and those bosses are going to work you hard. And if you can't make it, then so be it. This is capitalism. It's the only way when capitalism um, has only been around for a fraction, a tiny fraction of human society. Yet humanity progressed, developed language, developed architecture, developed mathematics and sciences without capitalism for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. So... That's what I'm saying about going back to your buckets. I am no longer convinced that playing the game, as long as it occurs within the current function of capitalism, as long as the people who stole from Nigeria, stole from Uganda, stole from Barbados, stole from India, as long as those people have never faced accountability, but in the form of distributive justice, in the form of freeing up the resources, stop in- interfering with other people's economies, as I've explained in my polit- in my podcast. Podcast politics, you see Thanks how it so. goes? <laughs> um, as long as those people do not rectify these past ills, then us playing the game, <clears throat> we're still getting violated. Mm. We just might be able to do it with a, a bit more of a gloss, a bit more drip because we're over here and I get to wear Benjar and I get to, you know, like chat to my bridging on a, in a nice podcast studio. Yeah, but where I'm from, where my ancestors are from, tens of millions of people have no shot at deciding the direction of their society. How does that make you feel? Dissatisfied discontented you know like i would love to just only do interviews about my success and my genius i'm not content with that you know there's 
there's work that could be done. That's why I don't really like how much the media has our people in a chokehold. Because in that time where we could be learning, in that time where we could be building, organizing our communities, we're giving ourselves over to a mainstream culture that keeps us basic, encourages us to be basic, requires us to be basic. That's why I really enjoy listening to your stuff because it's like, I remember when I first read about Liberia, when I've read this book also called The State of Africa, and it just opened up my eyes to how much I do not know and how much information is important for me in terms of how I relate to other people, how I reflect on my own life and how I think about what I want to do, mm-hmm. you know? Because mm-hmm. um, it does feel quite hidden. And it, it's like, when I look at what you're saying about hip hop and how hip hop is just like disintegrated into just like nonsense nowadays and the images that they purport, which therefore puts an image of what black people are like in the minds of other people yeah. growing up. And a lot of there's so much power in media and the things that we see and I just wonder how we're going to stop that train from going so fast like how are we going to pull it back and change the image in order for us to be seen differently but also for us to perceive ourselves differently so we can actually make some change as well I really believe that we have to commit to divesting walking away from this mainstream in terms of education in terms of media consumption you know everything, like everything. Yeah. <laughs> what the two parks and the Doctor Sebi's have always been saying, like you got to unplug from what is being put on you, mm. and you have to reimagine. Now that's asking a lot of most people who are not, who have, you know, we're just trying to live our life. But those of us who have that awareness, this is why I tell you that my goal is to increase the proportion of society that is literate in this stuff, so that we can have a bigger, more robust conversation it's not going to happen in a generation i mean it would be great if it happens in a generation but we we need to be grown-ups about this and we need to know that we're gonna we some of the l's that we've been taking will continue mm-hmm. doesn't mean that we all throw up our hands and just say there's nothing that could be done what is the win what can we do we can um as consumers you know like we can really boycott the bullshit music that's put on us excuse my french we can really, uh, uh, as as people in the diaspora, we can really uh, re-educate ourselves about back home and how to help. I'm not saying fly back and start a business. A lot of people do that and it works for them. That's cool. But if you are, if your business negatively affects the ecosystem of, the, um, of your home country, but it benefits you, then you're part of the problem. Mm. You feel me? You really need to uh, commit... Now, because that's so hard, I'm just willing to help. I'm just like, yo, to all, not just black people, to anyone who reaches that point of feeling like, oh, there's nothing that I can do. Yo, come, have a seat. Come chat to me. Let me spit some rhymes that might make you look at the world differently, might make you feel a bit optimistic, might make you feel a bit more clued up. Let me give you some music. Some, let me give you a listening experience that might allow you to bond with your family that might allow you to heal with your parents when you go back to them after you've listened to my episode about what happened in Africa and you realize what what they were trying to tell you all this time and you realize why they ended up the way they did. Maybe this will help on your emotional journey. Let me give you some art that holds your hand through the rediscovery of your purpose. 
That's beautiful. Man, I can speak here. Sit here and talk for time. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Nah, George, thank you so much for coming. Um, thank you. So... I'm, I need a part two. I'm going to tell you that, Dad. Yeah, no, I'm down, <laughs> man. Like, yeah, you already know. <laughs> so, um, a couple of quick fire questions for you. Let's yeah. do it. So, all right. How has, if you had to say, if you had to say in one phrase or one or a couple of words, how fatherhood has impacted your work, what would that be? <laughs> I have a different vim. I've talked a lot about the world, but now I have my whole world in one person. And he alone is enough reason for me to, you know, stand up and be the man he needs me to be in the world. Sorry, that weren't a few words. No, that was cool. That was cool. Um, I really loved, I really liked that. Um, What's one piece of advice that you hear all the time, but you actually think it's bad advice to give? <laughs> trust the process. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be careful whose process you're trusting. I like that. Um, final question. What's one tool or hack that helps you Cultivate your creativity. Listen to music and then find out more about the music. Mm. That's how I write my podcast. I try and find out who wrote this, why, who paid for it, how does it relate to where that person's from, how does it compare to every every other artist in their world. Um, and we do it a lot as black people. We talk about music. We know the politics. We know the field. We know the you know the landscape. But when you connect the dots, that's when you kind of a lot of the political education that I've talked about is just me connecting the dots through songs. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And then final question: Where can people find you? Listen to your latest podcast. Right. You can find me on all socials at George the Poet, one word spelled normally. Um, and you can find my podcast on not just BBC Sounds, but all uh, podcast listening applications, as well as Spotify. I mean, that's a, that's one of them. So yeah, man, that's, that's me. George, thank you so much, my bro. Appreciate that, broski. Take it easy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>